Hello. Welcome to Rusty Sonnets, episode two. The podcast where I read out an old poem, then I give it a thorough going over before I play a sound effect of Ric Flair saying woo, and then I go off on one, meaning that I abandon all pretense at academic rigour. This week's poem is called The Twa Corbys. It is a border ballad and it is um it's written by the poet who I think in a clearly unbiased sense, I really think objectively that this is the greatest poet there's ever been. My favourite poet. The poet by the name of Anonymous. It might sound like I'm joking. It might sound like I'm fooling around. But I really am quite earnest here. Anonymous is my favourite poet. Why is Anonymous my favourite poet? When I started up reading loads of poems and tried to become as knowledgeable about poetry as I could when I was a young man, I noticed a lot of poems were written by Anonymous. And I think at the time I assumed that either it was this tragic thing where the author had become forgotten, but the poem carried on due to, I don't know, the... the the building that housed the library that held these poems burning down or something like that. Or I thought maybe this person was anonymous because they didn't want anyone to know who they were. It's a bit like when someone sends an anonymous tip to a newspaper. Maybe there was something about the poem that would have shamed this person. Maybe it could have got them executed for treason. I don't know. I only learnt a little bit later that... Anonymous actually means that the poem probably wasn't written by one person. It was actually perhaps composed rather than written orally. So not on the page, but actually it was something that people would pass on to each other because they would remember it and they could recite it and they would recite it to other people. And those other people would be able to recite it as well. And it would actually belong to a culture. It would belong to the folk um, it would belong to the people and every now and again someone might change a little bit about it here and there or leave something out and so through repetition among many human minds and not being anyone's particular poem um, the poem would develop naturally it would become it would have its own sort of being its own will and it would pass between many people um, and the ballad was very much a poem of a common folk. In the way that we spoke about the sonnet last week, we know that the sonnet was in its origins a courtly poem and the author of the sonnet was very much identified with the sonnet itself. If someone showed themselves in court to be a, a, a master of the sonnet, then it could affect their career. They could become more successful. It was it was being literary and being able to write good sonnets um, to show that you had skill and wit, but also a depth of feeling, could put you in the in the Queen's favour in the Elizabethan court, and so on. But this is different. This is not about it. It's not about one particular author and their award. It it is a group of people. Um, some ballads were were passed around orally for hundreds of years before they were first written down. And so we get this idea of poetry existing as a sort of a mind to mind, something transferring horizontally and across generations as well. 
And that's what I like about ballads. That's what I like about other oral cultures. So Anonymous wasn't just the author of a ton of ballads. Anonymous wrote Beowulf as well. Anonymous wrote many of the Middle English epics as well. Anonymous probably wrote under a pseudonym as well. That pseudonym being, you ready for this one, super controversial. That pseudonym being Homer as well. Whoever Homer was... They wrote these epics down, but they didn't necessarily compose these epics. These epics would have been part of a long oral tradition of bards performing these epic poems and doing so without writing them down, a sort of cross between improvisation and memory. Sometimes it would take days for them to perform these, and it was a great event when someone would perform one of these epics. This is something I will go into more detail about in another podcast. But for now, we're looking at a ballad, and not just any old ballad, This the Trois Corbys is a border ballad and this is the last bit of background before i read the poem because i think a little bit of historical background will help you here the border ballads were set at a time when during the 15th and 16th century britain was not really an entity so we had england and we had scotland and they were both their own principalities And so they were two countries with two different sets of laws. And there was a border between England and Scotland. It's interesting because I'm recording this at the time of Brexit and border negotiations and the Irish border being a huge issue. Um, Apart from Hadrian's Wall, there wasn't really much to enforce the border. What do you know? That's something else topical, I guess. But um, there were lots of problems with, with this border, even though there was a wall. I thought walls solved all the problems. That's what I heard from somewhere. I can't remember who said it, but I heard walls are great. Walls are beautiful. Walls stop all the bad people going one way or the other. So even though there was a wall, there was basically nothing to stop someone killing someone else on the other side of a border and then just hopping into the other country where they couldn't be arrested. So I could kill someone in England and just jump across into Scotland that night. And guess what? No one could come and get me. In the same way that um, another big problem at the time was cattle theft. So I could just, in the dead of night again, I could bribe your sheepdog with some sausages and I could, I don't know, um, maybe I, I'm, I'm, I'm a nasty cattle thief. So maybe there is like a little boy watching it and I'll just donk him over the head with something. And then I steal your cattle and I drive your cattle across the border and there is nothing you can do about it. This carried on for 200 years. This was very much kind of like the old West. So a state of around the border, there was very much a state of anarchy and lawlessness because of this. People could do one thing. So if you did kill someone and jump over the border, or if you did, you stole someone's cattle, especially um, people were allowed to form a posse. So while the powers that be wouldn't do much to bring people to justice, you were allowed to form your own little mob and you you could go on what they called. This is a great name. A hot trot. A hot trot is amazing because it sounds like a really, really sexy communist or it sounds like a certain digestive problem that you might have. But anyway, these people would form a hot trot, this kind of posse, and they would go across the border, bring the other person to justice, maybe get their cattle pack and drive it back. But the other person would probably be strung up um, as vengeance. So this was allowed. Here's the poem. 
I'm going to read it out twice. It's written in a sort of Scots border dialect at the time. So I'm not going to put the accent on because that would sound terrible. I'm, I, I'm not going to do accents while reading poems by people with other accents. At the same time, I'm going to read it again and I'll try and sort of roughly translate it on the spot from the Scots. Don't worry too much about understanding this right away. Just listen to it. Try and get a sense of the music of the poem if you don't get a sense of the logic or the sense of the poem. Um, the sound rather than sense is a good thing. Maybe you will pick up on some things that are interesting. You might not understand them, but they'll interest you. Maybe a few images will strike out. I think that's the best thing. The first time you read a poem, I'll put a link to the poem, by the way, in the description. But the first time you read or listen to a poem, you don't have to understand it. Just look for what you do like about it. Ask questions about it. If, if it's on a piece of paper, underline things that you might want to look up later. Work out what your first impression is of the poem and then see if you find out more about perhaps what the poem actually means or find out more about the poet or the form or the genre. Find out if that contrasts with what your initial readings were. It's all really good stuff. This is what we do with poetry. We, we don't have to know what it means right away. Maybe we'll never know what a poem means. Maybe the poem doesn't have some deep meaning. Maybe the poet wasn't after meaning. Maybe your initial reading will really contrast with what you think about the poem after you find out more about it. This is all really interesting stuff. And that's what reading poetry is about. It's not about reading something in the paper and, and getting to the point of it right away. The journey of getting to the point of it, if even there is a point. Um, that's the fun of it, I think. So here we go. Firstly, in the Scots dialect but still in my estuary accent. And then afterwards, I'll give her a sort of rough, off-the-cuff translation. The Twa Corbys by Anonymous As I was walking all alane, I heard Twa Corbys making a main. The tain until Tiver did say, What shall we gang and dine the day? In behind, Yon old fail dyke, I wot there lies a new slain knight, and nobody kens that he lies there, but his hawk, his hound, and his lady fair. His hound is to the hunting gain, his hawk to fetch the wild fowl hame, his lady's taken another mate, so we may make our dinner sweet. Ye'll sit on his white house bane, and our Pike out his bonny blue eyne, we a lock of his golden hair, we'll thick out our nest when it grows bare. Many a one for him, Max Main, but none shall cane where he is gain. Over his white bones when they are bare, the wind shall blow for ever mare. And here's 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 a little off-the-cuff translation. Just in case you didn't know, Corbys, the Trois Corbys, are the two crows. So I'm still going to say Trois Corbys because I just like the music of it. But when I say Corbys, I mean crows, okay? So other than me keeping with the word Corbys, here's your rough translation. The Two Corbys by Anonymous. As I was walking... All alone, I heard two corbies making a moan. 
the one unto the other did say, Where shall we go and dine today? In behind the old stone wall, I hear there lies a new slain knight, and nobody knows that he lies there, but his hawk, his hound, and his lady fair. His hound is to the hunting gone, his hawk to fetch the wild fowl home, his lady's taken another mate, so we may make our dinner sweet. You'll sit on his white collarbone, and I'll peck out his bonny blue eyes. With a lock of his golden hair, we'll thick our nest when it grows bare. Many a one for him makes moan, but none shall know where he is gone, over his white bones when they are bare. The wind shall blow for evermore. So what I find really interesting straight off the bat is the device the poem uses, which is um, there's something interesting about ballads, which is speech is, is normally not attributed. Again, it gives an idea of the oral origin of the art form, because maybe if someone is performing the poem, they can adopt a different voice for each character so that someone who is listening to the poem, they know who's talking. But that's not always the case when it's being read, because there are no speech uh, quotation marks. There's no he said or she said. It's quite a bit more plain and obvious in this one. So we just hear a narrator, not much more of this narrator, just two lines worth of this narrator. And then this narrator has heard two crows talking. And I love that because, I mean, what is it? Does this narrator understand the language of crows? Or, are, or do these crows actually, when they think no one is listening, they look at each other and go, all right, mate, how's it going? Right, do you hear about, do you hear about what goes on over there? Another dead night, sounds a bit juicy, doesn't it? Wonder who killed him, three suspects, we go through them right now, but I think we all know who's responsible for it. Anyway, let's eat his eyes, let's get his golden hair, put it in our nest, it makes it proper nice, doesn't it? Proper nice when you've got a bit of golden hair in your nest. And then, like, don't worry about him, because, like, he's just going to be left there, he's going to rot, he'll just be a bunch of bones, the wind will just, wind will blow through it forevermore, because it's very windy here. It's very windy. You might think there might be days without wind. No, all the time, forever. Bit of a weather forecast in this poem as well. So that's what the, what, what the crows are saying to each other. But I love how you can get that sense of mythology. You get that sense of the crows being something more than crows. The way that crows are almost like trickster gods in mythologies. Um, or they're morally kind of ambiguous if a human being was telling this story they'd have to tell us how they feel about it as well and give a moral viewpoint but the crows are these conscious instruments of nature and so they're just voicing what has happened in a very matter-of-fact sense talking about what they can make of it and ultimately giving this very let's say darwinian naturalistic tone in the ending which is that this this night the golden hair, these gorgeous blue eyes that at the time, I guess, would have been held as as examples of innocence and purity. They will just become part of the elements, part of nature. Nature will find a, a, a use for the juiciest parts of this night and the driest, most miserable parts will just be left to become part of a landscape. So and. It, it's just very suitable that it's the crow's voices that say this and that the narrator is just, just there to introduce the crows for two lines and then we, we can hear these crows telling this story to each other, having a little chit-chat about it. Um, 
The other thing I really, really find interesting with this idea of the imagery and again, the use of animals and agency and animals, which is one particular reading of his poem, um, reads like perhaps the world's worst police procedural as well. So this idea that, um, three, three suspects are named in a way who was there. Who was that? You can imagine someone else now, not the crows, maybe, but some some local sheriff or magistrate, um, even though maybe someone's just hopped out back over the border after killing this guy. So what's the point of investigating it? But still, they say, Who, who's were there any witnesses? Does anyone know that he was out here at this time? Yes, there's three witnesses. There's um, the hawk his hawk and his hound his hound knew about it as well and his fair lady who who happens to have taken another mate oh right then let's think about this the hound eh i've always had my suspicions about him and that hawk bit of a wrong one as well oh the hound's still the hunting gone has he and the, and the hawk's fetching the wild fowl home oh that's a likely story isn't it of course they'd be doing that that's what happens all the time why cast dispersions on that i do wonder and the lady taking another mate as well oh 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 well you know poor thing she's probably you know she's taking another mate maybe maybe we've all been bereaved and sometimes we have to take whatever comfort we have and we you know we can't judge her for that we can't judge her for just finding another mate just you know that's what happens to some people they, they can't do it on their own they have to find someone else straight away obviously the poem is not making that point <laughs> the poem makes it quite clear that we know exactly who is responsible for this that it is probably uh the lady that issued the dictum that this blonde-haired blue-eyed fair knight must come a cropper and it is maybe the new mate that made that happen or maybe he paid someone off to make it happen so we get the idea of foul play and we get that idea of a moral vacuum happening within the poem and we get that idea of nature being indifferent and we get that idea of the terrible times that this poem was composed within now the ballad as an art form um you probably from the um from the meter of this particular poem you might not notice it it's not typical of a ballad form so as i was walking all alone I heard to our corbies making a moan. The tain until the tiver did say, Where shall we gang and dine the day? We're getting four stresses in each of those lines. So um, the poem, a ballad is normally divided into four line stanzas. Basically a stanza, you know, we said this already, but when you look at a poem, you see a, a bunch of lines together. Then there's normally a gap and then another bunch of lines together. That that bunch of lines is what we call a stanza. So the ballad normally has quatrains, four line stanzas. Now, normally the ballad is a little bit different, popularly known, but I think this is an acceptable variant. So each one of these lines has four stresses. The meter sort of jumps about the amount of stressed and unstressed syllables, but you just get that sense of those four beats in each line. Now, normally, um, well, more popularly in the ballads, it's a little bit different. So when we look at some other ballads, we'll try and maybe 
uh, find a ballad that echoes the form that we normally traditionally associate with a ballad. And the form that we normally associate with a ballad would be a four-stress line followed by a three-stress line followed by a four-stress line followed by a three-stress line. So, um, boom ba, boom ba, boom ba, boom ba. Bum ba 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 has that kind of rhythm. You might recognize this kind of rhythm um from hymns All things bright and beautiful, all creatures great and small, all these things wise and wonderful, the Lord God made them all. So that get the four stress first line, three stress second line, four stress third line free stress fourth line i don't really have to go into too much technical analysis because you probably recognize it from the hymns already you know this meter you know this rhythm you find it in songs all over the place it's just such a strong thing to keep in your head but you don't just find it in hymns you find this meter in a lot of dirty rhymes as well so if i said mary had a little lamb she had a little duck she put it on the mantelpiece you understand what i'm saying you know you get this so so um you hear it and obviously obviously mary had a little lamb her fleece was white as snow and everywhere that mary met went the lamb was sure to go you hear it in nursery rhymes you hear it in hymns and you hear it in quite bawdy dirty rhymes as well and i think that's where the draw of a ballad is it's sort of, it, it, it it uses a rhythm and a music that we find in the sacred it uses a rhythm and music that we find in innocence of of um, nursery rhymes even though nursery rhymes can be really really dark um, because they are orally transmitted as well just like the ballads and finally we get this idea so we have the, the profane the the dirty the dirty little ditty as well so we find this meter everywhere and i think that's the strength of the ballad because it gives a sense of the, sort of the profane but it has that sense of the holy and the innocent in it as well um a lot of ballads always deal with that sort of subject matter so here the subject matter is very much um the 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 levitious uh, relationship of the lady of ill repute you could say who's taken another lover there is there is adultery there is murder. It is very much um, like a sort of a, a TV drama or an exploitation flick of the day. These, these, these very sort of scandalous stories. We find these again in broadside ballads, which are, are a later form of a ballad that was printed out and sold like a newspaper. I'll talk about them another time, but back to the border ballads and the oral ballads for now. So yes, there's a few things. We always get that sense of just this, these very dramatic happenings and the sins happening, and we can associate them with the lawlessness of the Scottish border at the time. But we also um, get another idea of... Um, the way the action sets about. So we've already spoke about how speech isn't really attributed in ballads, which is very confusing when you're reading them, but probably not very confusing when they're performed. But we also get a sense that there's, they're almost like the third act, the final act of a play. There's, there's very little sort of exposition. You could say there's very little setup. There's normally a tragedy happening in the poem and we're there at the onset. So rather than sort of seeing everything else happening in the background that leads to this tragedy we're really there in the final moments before the tragedy happens um, and a very little bit of background may be being hinted at but really we just get straight to the action in the ballad um, none of this character development stuff another thing is we don't hear much about the 
internal states there isn't much reflection there isn't much introspection it's very much centered on the action and another thing that's really interesting about the form of a ballad these four line stanzas is it's all very self-contained as well often within the sort of two lines and four lines everything what happens the lines don't run over into the next line um all the pieces are very much slotting into place so the form really echoes the sort of way in which we find things out moment by moment it's very neat the way it all slots together i think another thing i should say about a ballad is they're normally sung um, they probably were sung at the time and so you might say they're more songs than poems and i would say it's sort of both in oral cultures there's not really a big dividing line between songs and poems um, this is very much a post-literary thing where we div divide the two but the two are very similar and some songs aren't always sung sometimes they are spoken and some things that we call poems are sung as well one more little thing to talk to you about before i go off on one and i get mr rick flair to announce that i am going off on one so you are not confused between me giving some almost rigorous academic commentary and then me just pulling stuff out of my navel um, and offering it to you as as a hot take on the poem so the last last thing i will talk about is is how the poet how the ballads were written down um, this comes from a certain volume of ballads called the Ch child ballads they're called the child ballads and they were compiled by a gentleman called francis child who as far as i know i don't think he was he i could be wrong here and i would love it if anyone sort of contacted me to correct me if this is the case but he compiled the ballads by looking at old broadsides, so collecting printed versions of these ballads. So he wasn't necessarily the one that transcribed them. He wasn't the one that visited all the cultures. He wasn't, he wasn't really an anthropologist, you could say, in, in the sense of the word that we understand it now. But he, he was able to find printed copies that we could identify as oral ballads rather than broadside ballads. And, um, and then he compiled them into a very famous volume that was very popular um, called The Child Ballads. And this is how um, poets uh, such as such as um, Wordsworth and Coleridge um, were able to write their own literary ballads after that. Um, one of the most famous ones, of course, um, of their lyrical ballads was um, The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner by Coleridge. So um, that's how we get to that's how we know a lot of his oral ballads, because of this gentleman called Francis Child, who compiled them all, to, all into a volume that was very popular um, from the middle to the end of the 19th century. That means we're going off on one now. I don't think I'm going off on one too much when I say if we look at the ballad, we don't just sort of recognize poetry in an art form. I think we see a direct line of ancestry to Johnny Cash when he sings the Folsom Prison Blues, when uh, Johnny Cash sings his songs to prisoners about the crimes that they've committed. We definitely get a sense of the ballad. Um, we, there's the Irish uh, rebel ballad the rebel songs as well and the prison ballad often played a part in there when it would begin with the lines lonely prison wall um, so we get murder ballads as well in nick cave nick cave did an album of murder ballads and they often follow that that same that same pattern 
but but you're probably thinking Niall that's that's really not that much of a stretch I'm pretty sure many academic types would agree with you that lots of music and the, especially country and western um, owes a debt to the the ballad because a lot of folk music comes from the ballad as well and there's those connections between popular music and folk music i will take it a little bit further how about if i throw gangster rap into the equation here because i definitely see a, a line of descent between the oral ballads and nwa especially straight out of compton their first album with um their their signature tune um fudge the police so that when nwa came about um while you had other sort of rappers and other sort of hip-hop collectives such as uh run uh, not run dmc run dmc were very much about party music for hip-hop but you had public enemy before public enemy actually perhaps one of the first sort of works of of social commentary in hip-hop was the message by grandmaster flash and the furious five you know the one don't push me because i'm close to the itch uh but but that one was very much about the, the 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 squalor people were living in at the time the social deprivation that formed the society that hip-hop uh, very much a party music at the time sprung from but then you had uh, acts like public enemy who were much more political they mirrored the black art movement poets for instance and sort of artists such as gil scott heron who also were connected to the black art movement but i think um nwa were interesting because with public enemy you still had a kind of a political and a moral commentary on race racism and the conditions people grew up in but with nwa there really wasn't they were very much just saying the thing how it was they were very much telling the story they weren't but they got accused of glamorizing this as did ice t but um they they called it reportage instead in fact um perhaps the best description of hip-hop at the time was provided by chuck d who was the uh sort of main voice of public enemy when he said rap music is cnn for black people in the sense that what wasn't making it onto the news um, what wasn't being reported about how it was to live in the inner city in south central los angeles for example or in new york at the time um, this wasn't making it onto the news and so it was a sort of moral duty in some ways of rappers to talk about it but what i find interesting is is the lack of moral commentary on it and i think that's what you find perhaps in some of these ballads sung by johnny cash and that's what you find in the oral ballads when they're talking about this this terrible time when there was lawlessness and anarchy there's never that much of a moral voice and it's really interesting that the twa corby as i said twa corby's as i said lets the crows tell the stories as if um for crows of a voice of a nature that has no moral standpoint it has no moral way of looking at what is happening it does not recognize sin and i think there's something about that in the art of nwa and other gangster rappers in the sense that they are just talking about things they're telling the stories there is no need what is the need you can have your own moral commentary on this you can maybe have a moral commentary in how this stuff should be banned from the airwaves because of what the 
things are said within them or in, in the language that is used for them. Or um, you could actually recognize the issues that are being spoken about and have a moral commentary and a moral debate about that. And isn't that the problem with a lot of these artworks that do come out and just say something without making a moral point is that we become immediately anxious about the lack of a moral point and we feel that a lack of a moral point means that the thing is being glorified and approved of which is not necessarily the case. I think it's really interesting that social media has amplified the moral aspect of art forms. We, we tend to have to use social media to some capacity. I try not to use it too much because I find it just immediately alters my personality, social media, in ways that I don't enjoy. But there is certainly a sort of moral standpoint that we have to share. And because we're sharing our poetry on social media, we're sharing it within this moral space all of a sudden, within what Wittgenstein he had something called language games. You don't have to know about it, but just to say that different environments and different ways to speak to each other have different rules and conventions, a bit like a game. So Twitter um, very much is, and Facebook are very much caught with our political standpoints and our moral standpoints. And even if we share something, it's interpreted in that aspect of its moral statement and its its moral capacities. And so I think a lot of art, because of the way that we share it, is more sort of morally pre preoccupied. And the sense of just reporting something, the sense of just saying something without having the voice. So with poetry, for instance, or maybe with music and other arts. But when people share a poem about a big issue on social media, the poem itself often incorporates the moral identity and the moral voice of the poet on top of that reportage. And so the voice of the poet intrudes. But I find that we're missing something. And I kind of like poetry sometimes that is visceral. Poetry that is amoral. Poetry that just gives a very vivid description of something that is happening. Um, rather than having to give an immediate moral commentary about it. Without the actual voice of the poet intruding. How can we do this? How can we get this back? Maybe it all lies once again with this idea of authorship. Maybe the person speaking is once again too closely identified with the poem. Maybe social media amplifies a person, a persona, a version of us rather than the person we are. And this version of us is, is morally it's sort of hyper moral. It's almost like a, a super ego, a hectoring voice somewhere in your brain saying, that's bad. Don't do that. Don't do that. Maybe we need to get away from that to, in some aspects, because much like the times of the court, poets seem to be judged on their moral standpoints and them showing certain agreeable degrees of of attitude and understanding and morality. How can we get away from that? How can we make poetry something a bit more primal if we choose to? If I recognise that the best poet that ever wrote is anonymous, then surely the answer is to shun the personas of social media, to shun the personas of fame. Maybe the way to do this is for us all to become anonymous again, for us to create work as anonymous to throw work out there for someone else who is also anonymous to change it and for it to keep changing. Maybe we have to switch off our phones and become an oral culture 
and maybe do these poems with absolute permission for everyone else to remember what they could about that poem and then recite their own version of it to someone else. Maybe this will be really exciting. Maybe someone should do this. Maybe I should do this. Nah, but if you want to do it, that would be great. Hey guys, that's the end of my hot take. I think that's the end of the podcast. You can get back to me um, via my Twitter. I'm going to start an email at some point, but for now you can private message me if you like on Twitter, or you can sort of just at me on Twitter. Either way, um, Poet Nile, P-O-E-T-N-I-A-L-L. If you enjoyed it, then please share it. And if you enjoyed it on iTunes, please give it a review um, because that will just stoke my ego, which is fragile all the time. And while it will probably maintain the fragility because I'll be dependent on your sharing and your compliments, it will give a moment of, of warmth within the existential crisis that I am permanently occupying. So you're all great for listening to this. I also just want to say thank you to anyone who listened last time because, okay, I got 80 something views. Um, which I am so grateful for because normally once a week I host a poetry night and I talk to a room full of about 70 people at the most and most of them haven't come there for me they've come there to read their own poems or hear their mates read their poems so for people to click on something at least and maybe listen to something that is me talking about poems um, makes me incredibly happy and it, and it is perhaps the greatest success of my career for a long time so thank you for that I'll be back in a week's time with another poem. I hope you enjoyed listening to Vatoire Corbys. I hope you read more old poems now. And hey, one more thing to at me about. If there's any poems you'd like me to do, then let me know. And I might do them. Oh, the other thing. I promised to say that I was going to tell you what my cutoff point was for an old poem. I'm pretty sure there's no one listening by this point, so I can tell you now. My cutoff point is two things. Firstly, the poet can't be alive because I have feelings about sort of adding a voice to a poet while they're still living. Secondly, the cutoff point is probably later than you might accept it to be. Um, mainly because I don't want it to be dead white men, the podcast. I, I want there to be more women and I want there to be people um, of different ethnicities represented on this podcast as well. So that really means that like, you know, women don't rise in prominence in a lot of poetry. Sure, you've got ancient poets like Sappho, but we really don't have women poets becoming more of a common thing until Victorian times. And the other thing that we have is that um, people, I think people, poetry, of course we have poetry from other cultures in translation, but as far as poetry written in English, you know, we really have to wait until the 20th century when uh, we get poets from sort of different ethnicities and the same old white people as well. So I, my cutoff point is in the 20th century and it's quite a late one. So remember the poet can't be alive. That's one thing. And I might not go this late, but I just thought if I'm going to have a cutoff point in the 20th century, why not choose the date of the birth of the Internet or the World Wide Web, which is 1991? So 1991 is my cutoff point. I know we don't think a poem from 1990 is very old and I doubt I will re we'll read a poem from 1990. But um, 
at the same time if the milk's in the fridge for four days we call that milk cold as well so i guess it's a matter of perspective man i'm done thank you for listening have a really good week listen to other poetry podcasts as well look at the ones that i like on soundcloud um poet waffle uh listen to lunar poetry podcast as well because that's fantastic and a poem a week which is another podcast from them i will shout out other podcasts i promise in future episodes other than that take care you're great have a good one bye bye